Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Today's episode has been sponsored by Jay McLaughlin. Jay McLaughlin is a timeless lifestyle brand with incredible style and a spirit of connection. I am obsessed with Jay McLaughlin and have been so honored that they are sponsoring my Zibiverse tour. It just so happens that the tour goes to so many communities and areas of the country that have Jay McLaughlin stores. And I love that the brand is philanthropic through Jay McLaughlin's local and loyal programming host store events to give back to organizations that are meaningful to Jay McLaughlin's local communities. I also love the fact that the clothes are just so chic. They make me feel polished and modern. And the best part is that most of the line comes in fabrics that don't wrinkle. I especially love the dresses, the cashmere sweaters, the other sweaters. You'll see them all over my Instagram. I typically tag at Jay McLaughlin. And so you can check it out. It is absolutely one of my favorite brands and I am over the moon excited to be working with them. In fact, I want to share the love with all of you. Jay McLaughlin is giving 20% off new customers and listeners of my podcast with special code ZIBBY20, capital Z-I-B-B-Y 20. That's 20% off for new customers and listeners of the podcast with special code capital Z Zibby 20. Take advantage of it today. My favorites are this white open long cashmere sweater that I've been wearing on every flight that I've taken on this tour. I have a blue with light blue horizontal striped sweater, several dresses. I even wore on Morning America. Check it out. Jay McLaughlin. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast that you're listening to right now, thank you so much, called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It is a daily podcast, 365 days a year, and each day we talk to an author about all of the things related to their career, their book, their life, and more in 30 minutes or less, because who has time? I am now an author myself, although I wasn't when I started this podcast, and you can get my new memoir, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, wherever books are sold starting July 1st, and my children's book, Princess Charming. You can learn more about me at zibbyowens.com, but really, you're here to learn more about the authors, and that is what we're going to do. Also, be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Zcast Podcast Network. You can learn more at zcastnetwork.com and definitely check out those shows as well.
Also, just a quick note that submissions for the Zibby Awards are open and will close on September 15th. Go to zibbyowens.com and you will find the Zibby Awards open submissions where we celebrate all the under-celebrated parts of a book, like the best spine, the best author's note, the best table of contents. And authors can nominate their own best publicists, best editors, and so on. There will be an in-person award ceremony in October in New York. You will not want to miss it. Go to zibbyowens.com. Jeanette McCurdy is the author of the memoir, I'm Glad My Mom Died. You may have seen that I posted about this book on Instagram at Zibby Owens because I loved it. I read every word. I was obsessed. I was highlighting. I just, it was really, really interesting. Jeanette McCurdy starred in Nickelodeon's hit show, iCarly, and its spinoff, Sam and Cat, which, by the way, my teenage daughter watched many episodes of and, in fact, started the show by saying hello to her, as well as in the Netflix series Between. In 2017, she quit acting and began pursuing writing and directing. Her films have been featured in the Florida Film Festival, the Salute Your Shorts Film Festival, Short of the Week, and elsewhere. Her essays have appeared in HuffPost and the Wall Street Journal. Her one-woman show, I'm Glad My Mom Died, had two sold-out runs at the Lyric Hyperion Theater and Hudson Theater in Los Angeles. She hosts a podcast called Empty Inside, which has topped Apple's charts and features guests speaking about uncomfortable topics. She lives in Los Angeles. Welcome, Jeanette. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss your amazing memoir, I'm Glad My Mom Died. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. I have to say, so I have four kids and I was holding this book. I always read right before they go to sleep. So this was my, you know, bedtime reading a few nights ago and I started it and I was sitting there reading and they were like, they looked at the title and they were like, (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) they're like, that's so mean. (laughs) It's funny to hear kids being horrified by it because often my experience has been that mothers are horrified of it and sort of like, how can you say that about your mother? But it is a title. I, I'm aware that it's, that it, I'm aware of how it comes across. And I also know that it's a title that I wouldn't have named the book if I didn't mean it sincerely. And if I didn't feel like I earned it in the writing of the book. So I hope that that comes across to anybody who, who reads it. I hope it makes sense to them by the, by the end of the book and maybe sooner. It makes sense to me. I read every word of this book. I was like hanging on your every words. I found so many parts of your journey just utterly fascinating, particularly, obviously, your relationship with your mom. And even though you say you're glad that she died, the complexity of your relationship is laid out on every page. The parts where obviously she was sick for a long time, and that is so hard to deal with loving someone who is in a prolonged illness and all of the stress that comes with that when their quality of life is so impaired, especially towards the end. But the backstory of your relationship and your realizing how things were as you looked at them again as an adult. Well, you know, I'm filling in all the stuff you should be saying. No, (laughs) easier for me. I appreciate it. I'm like, yeah, cool. (laughs) It's just that, you know, sometimes you don't realize in the moment that the person who's supposed to care for you the most is maybe not treating you in the best way for you. And it's hard to realize in the moment because you have nothing to compare it to. So you have all that mixed with a mom with an illness for a long time. It's very hard. That was so much on your shoulders from such a young age, which you write about so beautifully. Thank you. No, I I think it's impossible to face that kind of a reality of, oh, this person who's meant to be my sort of protector may in fact be my abuser. I think that's, as a child facing that reality would be against your survival instinct, you know, and there's that that need to survive, that need to cope. And so I think, you know, my experience certainly was that I just 
lived in delusion and lived in, well, my mom wants what's best for me. And I just suppressed any thought that I had that didn't agree with that narrative that I have of her, that I had of her, which was just on that pedestal. So I, of course, wasn't aware of all of that, the mental gymnastics that I was doing at the time. But in retrospect, and through a lot of therapy and, and recovery processes, I was able to kind of recognize, oh, that's what was happening. That's what was going on that my entire childhood and even adolescence and even early adulthood. And it was a, a tough reality to come to terms with. It was very, very challenging because because it sort of meant reorienting my my lens that I viewed the world in. Like everything was oriented around what would mom want and what does mom expect of me and what are mom's goals and mom's needs and mom, mom, mom. And to say, oh, wow, that okay, I need to take a step back from that and figure out what I want and what I need, separate from my mother who who had a lot of a lot of really destructive needs um, to both herself and myself, that it was it was very daunting. It was very daunting and very exhausting, but i'm 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 happy to have done the work and to be, I think, you know, never fully on the other side of anything like losing a parent and and all the complications that come with that dynamic of the relationship aside, but I do feel for the most part on the other side of it. And I'm really relieved about that. What I think you did so successfully in the writing of the story is we went along with you on the ride, right? So, so even though things jumped out at me, the way you wrote about it was like, okay, that, yeah. And then we would take showers and she would give me exams. And when you read it, you're like, wait, what did she say? Like what, what kind of exam? So the reader, you take the reader along under like with the innocent eyes of you as a child. And it isn't until later when we go through it with you, when you're in therapy and some, you know, the doctor kindly points out, like, you know, that maybe that's not how everybody's mom is, that they don't let them shower by themselves till they're 16, 17 years old. And you realize it. And then we're along with it, with you. So it's almost like you're just taking us through this grueling process. And then like coming out the other side with you. It's very, it's, it was like very emotional, the whole journey. You did a great oh, job with it. Good. I'm so glad it, it, it resonated with you. Truly, that, that's like, that's, that's amazing to hear. I, I'm glad you mentioned this sort of taking you through the present moment of, of my childhood. Cause I, I mean, first off, I just find it more entertaining, I guess, from a very just like Frank uh, standpoint. I just think it's, it's, it's more entertaining to be really experiencing the eyes of a child and we can all relate with that and we all know what being a child kind of entails so that was that that was important to me to be entertaining but then also I find that when I write from where I'm at now about my past I feel like my instinct would be to get too wistful Mm -hmm. kind of like poetic I think it's too easy for things to get a bit more glossy and I think there's something about the the delusion of who I was as a child and the delusion that I was living in that's that's funnier and both and more striking. I think it, I think it hits a little harder. I hope it hits a little harder. But yeah, that's what I, I certainly hope. You also did an amazing job and I really, you know, tip my hat to you. And I, I am not just saying this, I interviewed tons of people and, you know, your the way that you dove deep into your eating disorder history and all of showing the underside really of bulimia and what it can do and the scenes where you have like vomit on your arms and, you know, you're showing us like, this is not glamorous. Like being a celebrity with an eating disorder is not a walk in the park. Thank you very much. Right. This is, you show the underside of fame. You show the underside of, 
of living with something that takes over your brain, really, and is so destructive. And again, it's like so powerful to see you come out the other side. There's a chapter at the end, I think it's like chapter 82, and I literally was like screenshotting pictures because I have a friend who struggles. And I was like, I want to send her this whole chapter. I'm actually just going to send her the book because then it became, I was like, wait, but this is so perfect for her too and this and this. So anyway, whatever, I'll send her the book. But, you know, if I could just read maybe a paragraph from this chapter, if that's okay. So it's about your relationship with the scale. And even just this one paragraph, my scale, it's cold and heavy. Well, okay, two paragraphs. It's cold and heavy in my hands. I walk slowly with it because I'm stalling. I've gotten rid of it before seven or eight times, but every time I go right back out the next day and get a new one. So far, I haven't been able to get through 24 hours without getting a new one, but I'm hopeful that this time might be different. Maybe this time, since I'm making it more of an occasion. Since my getting rid of it is my gift to myself for my 24th birthday, I'll be able to get rid of it for good. My scale has defined me for so long. The number it shows tells me whether I'm succeeding or failing, whether I'm trying hard enough or not, whether I'm good or bad. I know it's unhealthy for anything to have that much authority over my self-worth, but no matter how hard I've tried to fight it, I have always felt reduced to the number on the scale, maybe because in a way it's easier. Defining yourself is hard, complicated, messy. Letting the number on the scale do it for you is simple, direct, straightforward. Then you say, it sounds ridiculous, life beyond the scale. It's so dramatic, but unfortunately true for me. I'm embarrassed that this is my reality. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's growth to be embarrassed. So good. Thank you for reading it. It's so, it's like, it it makes me a bit emotional to hear it read back. It's so, it's so rewarding. It's really, it really feels like, you know, that connection of just, I guess, just connection. It, It feels so nice. Thank you for reading it. Oh, you're welcome. You know, candidly, I've been writing about the scale since I was 14. I've had this essay in 17 magazine with me literally holding my scale in disgust, being like, you know, I, I can't deal with this. And it's been a lifelong thing for me. And uh, no yeah, so with ups and downs and, you know, the, the part of when you're, when you go through the part where you're like having to track the not tracking. Yes. Cause I spent like seven years in like every single bite was written. Anyway, we've all had our stuff. This article for 13, you were 14, you said? Yeah. I'm so intrigued how you had the wherewithal to write about the thing while in the thick of the thing. How, I mean, that must've been intense. It was intense. It wasn't supposed to be for 17. It was supposed to be my interior thoughts, but my mom found it and was like, you should publish this. It'll help other girls. And I was like, why would I do that? And anyway, she encouraged me. I was like, well, it'll never sell. And then I sent it in and they ran it. And that literally like put me on this whole path because so many people responded to the piece and so many girls out there were like, thank you. Like I didn't know because I had gained a bunch of weight, not even a bunch of weight, but like I gained, I don't know, 20 pounds when I was 14, when my parents divorced and it just made me feel terrible. And I've always, you know, I was just chatting with a girlfriend yesterday. Our moms are of the like grapefruit for breakfast generation, the like guilt, you know, workaholic Jane Fonda nonstop. Yeah. And we're still in that camp, right? Like, so I related so much to your mom. My mom is tiny and she's adorable and I love it, but it's like, I feel like I could eat her for breakfast at this point, you know? Anyway, Fonda and grapefruit for breakfast are just the real, like quintessential that era, that generation body kind of, yeah, that they're the, they're the flagship body image kind of images come to, come to mind for sure. (laughs) So in your, like your whole relationship, when your mom teaches you calorie restriction, you know, I literally was given like a book of calories to count when I was nine and I was like, and I still have it somewhere, but yeah. 
So I get it. Like I, I, it was a little different. I mean, it was, it was different probably because I was unsuccessful. (laughs) Whereas your papers, you succeeded in a way. (laughs) Like I could not pull it off. I was so good at bulimia. You're you're so good at anorexia and bulimia. I'm so jealous. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Obviously this is like a sick joke. I'm sorry. That was like making light of it. But you know, there is this like, what can you do to control your body and and feeling so out of control? And that's why I found it so interesting that you said it's actually how you define yourself versus being out of control. It's very different. It's, It's about like identity versus controlling the uncontrollable in a way. Mm, I I think both played such a such an integral role in my kind of development of eating disorders, and like it was interesting to me. You mentioned right after your parents' divorce is when it started for you. I I feel like so often when I hear people speak of their experience with an eating disorder or eating disorders that it comes from that right around the inception of the eating disorder was some sort of intense life event. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's like pretty commonplace for eating disorders. And it's so, it's so like fascinating to me. It's not, I think fascinating is the right word, like truly fascinating to me in not a, not a gross way, but like, I think there's, I wish there was more work done toward just helping people with eating disorders. I know there's so much work that's being done and I know they're, they're talked about in such a different way than they were 10, even five years ago. I'm so grateful for that, but I do feel like the narrative that, you know, they, it's, it's this lifelong recovery process and that you can never really get out of them and that they're always kind of going to haunt you. They, it sounds awful. You know, it sounds horrifying. <laughs> like, I remember hearing that when I first entered recovery. My, my therapist literally being like, you know, the most well-meaning, wonderful therapist. He was amazing. Um, Jamie, if anybody's in Toronto, he's, he's based out there. But he said, this is going to be a lifelong struggle. And I thought, well, that doesn't really motivate me much to try work because <laughs> if I can't get to, I like the idea of being able to get to the other side of something. I like the idea of being able to not have to live with the baggage and the just dragging this thing through life. And I say this because I don't feel like I'm there now. I feel I don't have any, I'm not plagued by, by any sort of destructive eating behaviors and not even destructive thoughts about eating. Like I thought that piece would always be there. I'd always have to keep the thoughts in check and keep, oh, I'm obsessing. Oh, I'm gonna, that, that narrative is, is the eating disorder voice is so dialed down. I'm, I would say it's near silent in my, in my voice, in my head. And I think that's important to share. And I want to share that for anybody listening who might have eating disorders, because I do think recovery is possible. I do think being recovered is possible. I don't think it's something that you have to battle and take with you for your life. And I want that, no pun intended, weight Mm -hmm. to be lifted. You know, I don't want that. I don't want that to be something that, that people carry with them. It's really unfortunate to me. I agree. I feel like alcoholism is presented in the same way, right? It's just each day, right? How many years are you in recovery Like the paradigm of that to people who are more goal oriented, I think is incredibly destructive. (laughs) Yes. Yes. It's it's hopeless. And I think it can actually lead to more of a spiral. Yes. I think, I think that if, if there is ever a slip, I think it can lead to, I can think it can quickly lead to a spiral when you're just thinking, well, what's the point? It's always going to be with me. I'm never going to get to the side of this. Yeah. how, How are you with all of that now? Do you feel, how do you label it? How do you identify with it? You know, I'm now like at a different life stage and I'm accepting sort of a larger body than I would like. Do you know what I mean? But it's something that I'm still dealing with. Like, okay, here I am in another close size, you know, Mm -hmm. I I don't know. It's just, uh, but I don't have, 
I've rationalized it. Like, I don't have time to do this. Like, I keep finding these programs. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then it's like, well, I don't have time to eat like three ounces of steak and an apple. Like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go back to eating my normal food. Thank you very much. I love food. You know, it's not worth it. it so it's, it's more like, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. It's always, it's a work in progress, but I don't have an, I'm not, I don't have an eating disorder. I, I just am probably heavier than I would like. I would just leave it at that, I guess. Got it. But, um, I don't, maybe I don't think enough about what I'm eating. I kind of went the other way, you know, where I, you go from being so obsessive and now I'm just like, okay, great. You know, I have like, you know, my husband's like, here, take these dark chocolate sea salt caramels. And I'm like, great. I'll just eat these all day. Thanks. That's so sweet. And I'm eating them because he loves me, you know? <laughs> No, I found I found that a bit too when I when I when I initially felt like recovery was such a such a stumbly process for me. But once I really started finding my footing, I got so rebellious with food. I was like, "Fuck it, I'm gonna just eat junk food all day long. I'm gonna have brownies and cookies and coke ices and just like enjoy it and enjoy the food that I deprived myself of for over a decade. And it tasted amazing. It was it was it was such a it's so strange for a Coke I see to be a healing experience, but it was in my case. And now I'm at this cool place where it's like, I, I love healthy food and I love junk food. And I have a very, like, I don't know, I can't, can't even, literally couldn't even tell you what I ate yesterday, but it's like, I'm sure there was a mix of some sort of salad at some point. Oh, I had pizza for dinner and a salad on the side. I had eggs. Like there's no, there's no rules and it feels, and it feels great. Um, what I'm trying to say is I would like some of your sea salt, dark chocolates. I would be happy to share them with you. I can FedEx you. I can FedEx them to you. They're delicious. <laughs> hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com You know, you also, and I'm sorry, I feel like I was totally oversharing in this and it's about you and anyway. Oh, I'm so, I'm so grateful. I really, I enjoy it. I, I appreciate it. 
this is my last thing about food, and then I want to move on to something else, but this last paragraph, you said, this new relationship to food deeply confuses me. For years, I have been in control of my diet, my body, myself. I have kept myself real thin and my body childlike, and I have found the perfect combination of power and solace in that, but now I feel out of control, reckless, hopeless. The old combination of power and solace is replaced by a new combination of shame and chaos. I do not understand what is happening to me. I'm terrified of what will, hap- what will happen when mom sees me. That was at another stage of your journey, but I also thought that was really beautifully written. And then on top of just regular eating stuff and growing up and all the other stuff that the average person has, because you grew up on TV and in such a pu- the public eye, you have to contend with that, which is just another level of stress. And you wrote, the kind of fame I have now is causing me a level of stress I did not know was possible. I know everybody wants it and everybody tells me how lucky I am to have it, but I hate it. I feel constantly on edge whenever I leave the house to go anywhere. I'm worried that strangers will come up to me, and I get very anxious when interacting with strangers. And then you say, I'm so unimpressed by people, even irritated by them, at times even disgusted by them. I don't know exactly when this happened, but I know it's a relatively recent switch, and I know fame had something to do with it. I'm tired of people approaching me like they own me, like I owe them something. I didn't choose this life. Mom did. (laughs) That was my bitter stage. <laughs> you know, I I wanted to to because I think fame is such a, a a bizarre. I mean, it's so bizarre. We all we we get it to some degree, but to write about it and kind of reflect on it can sound so whiny. And I think I mentioned that at some point. Like, God, I know how whiny this sounds because I felt that at the time. I felt like how petulant and annoying and whiny to be complaining about this thing that everybody glorifies, everybody romanticizes, and many people or I should say many people romanticize and glorify and many people want and how, you know, and I felt, I felt shame from feeling so I felt ungrateful. I, I, and I felt the shame from feeling ungrateful for this thing. And then I had the pressure from my mom and then, you know, my mom who, who loved the fame and really kind of found her worth in the fame. And then that suddenly switched and she started becoming jealous of the fame. The way I see it now is that I think fame drove this wedge in my relationship with my mom because I think fame is the first thing that led her to really understand that she and I were different people. I think we were so enmeshed and that she so found her identity and who I was before then. And then when she's seeing me getting my picture taken and she's on the sidelines watching, at first it was smile big, smile bright, sign your name, be sure to do the curly Y. Like it was all the the direction. And then it quickly morphed into something a lot darker Mm -hmm. where I'm sitting there going like, oh my God, this is, I don't enjoy this. I don't want this. And then I'm looking at her and she's saying comments to me that are very aggressive and jealous. And I'm thinking, I can't, I can't do anything right. I, I fought for this life for, for so long, for a decade and I got it. And now she's still unhappy. And I think it was so disappointing because in my mind, success or fame would have made my mom happy, would have healed our relationship, would have made my family's life better. And it didn't do any of those things. And yeah, I just, I try, I guess I tried to show that and, and, and also be honest with how whiny it sounds at times to be, to be complaining about it. Well, I think there's like, and I'm sure you and your therapist are so familiar with all the research on being a child of a narcissist, but you, there is nothing you can do. There was nothing you could have achieved or done to really ever please her because she's a narcissist, right? So, I mean, the fact, and she was on so on such an end of the extreme, like the scene when you talk about you're getting your first adult apartment and she was like, can I sleep over? And then she stayed for three months. It literally like broke my heart reading that part. Cause I was like, oh my gosh, 
you know, and, and you're unable to say anything because then she guilts you like crazy. It's this whole vicious cycle. So no matter how perfect you are, it's, it makes no difference, but it's like, you still have to try. Yeah, it felt it felt crazy making and kind of unpacking those narratives in therapy and trying to get to the bottom of them and understand how much they dictated my life and how much that need to be need to be on, need to be present, need to be perfect, need to be, you know, even just every part of myself was was orchestrated in that way and kind of understanding how deep that those narratives ran for me was an uncomfortable process. It was it was definitely not easy. And I think anyone who is the child of a, of a narcissist, I'm sure, unfortunately, they, they can relate and they get it. Because I, I think ultimately the belief that you are not fully loved by the person who's supposed to love you the most is something very hard, right? Because how, how can they actually love you if they're not actually, if they don't actually have your best interests in mind? Yes. And you know what? That makes me think of my my belief was always that I could earn love, mm-hmm. that love was a thing that needed to be earned. I didn't even realize that that's how I viewed it for a long time. Of course, it took years to really get there, but I thought that it was a thing that you that you earned by doing well, by being good, by being on, by doing sacrificing everything that you want for the other person and by navigating their moods every second of the day and surrendering your entire identity to somebody. And if it's not all of those things, it's not love. And I'm not worthy of love if it's not all those things. I don't deserve love if it's not all those things, which is mindfuck. It's really, it's really, really, it's, it's intense for sure. Well, I will say in having done research on this and like a million other things, children of narcissists have a strong tendency to end up with partners who are also narcissists. So just put that on your radar screen. <laughs> Keep that in your back pocket for what it's worth. I think I've already dated a few of them. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm like, maybe I'm too late on this, but you know, just throwing it out there. (laughs) Is your experience, are you child of a narcissist? Are you comfortable sharing that? Are you? I'm just, I'm an armchair psychologist, essentially. (laughs) Okay, great. Love it. Love it. Anyway, how did you write this book? What was your, like, how did you do this? Did it all just come pouring out or did you give yourself a time limit? Did you know it was going to be a book? I know you mentioned writing earlier in your life that that's actually what you wanted to do from a young age and it was completely ignored. So when you actually sat down to do this, how did you do it? It started, I guess, in the pretty traditional sense with a book proposal. So I had written kind of two essays uh, on my life. One was from me in the point of view, uh, the the proposal essays were um, when my mom teaches me calorie restriction that essay. And then one that sort of became various other pieces, which is me kind of at like a teen choice, kid choice event with a therapist. I included those in the proposal and fortunately sold sold the the book. And then the, I was so surprised that like the deadlines come so quickly. It's like, (laughs) you know, I just sold the book and then they're like, okay, it's coming out August 9th of next year. I'm like, whoa, this is, it's moving so fast, which was very exciting. And and I think, and, and, and exhilarating and motivating I started out with a goal of a thousand words a day, bumped it up to 1500, then bumped it up to 2000 once I really kind of like got in a groove, but wanted to start out gently. And my initial, I don't do a ton of outlining, but I do just kind of like, mm-hmm. I consider them, well, my, my um, editor considers them vignettes versus chapters because some of the, some of the vignettes in the book are as little as a page. Yep. So I kind of mapped out, I know I want to cover this thing. I know I want to kind of cover this thing and just kind of a few words of whatever the topic was for that specific vignette. And then I did a, a first draft and then filled in a lot of blanks. So would 
add vignettes. Oh, this not in a chronological way at all. I'd go, oh, I think there's some, there needs to be something between this and this. This doesn't quite make sense. I need to connect the tissue there. And I think I went through about a dozen drafts over the course of a year and four or five months and was just very in it. I laughed a lot while writing it. I cried a lot while writing it. It was a true healing process for me. And I'm, I'm really grateful that Simon & Schuster believed in me, specifically my editor, Sean Manning. Like he, he was amazing and gave the most incredible notes and really, I think, understood my voice. I think it would have been so easy. And I was scared of this, of like sending in a proposal of what I want it to be. And then having an editor come on board and be like, actually, maybe let's tone this down a little bit. Let's make, let's make this have more of a heavy hand in, in what, or let's, let's have this piece be more amplified in the book because we want to show the audience. Like I was very concerned about it becoming something that it wasn't, that wasn't truthfully what I felt was the most important piece, my relationship with my mom and that story. And, and I'm extremely grateful that my, my editor was so supportive and, and literally every note that he sent in made the book, I think so much better and never once lost. He never once lost sight of what it was and he was really helpful in guiding it. Shout out to Sean. It's wonderful. Makes all the difference. Yeah. So are you, I hope you're going to keep writing. Are you going to try a novel or anything or? I'm working on a novel right now. I'm working on a novel and a collection of essays and kind of alternating with each of them, which has been, it's been really fun because I, that way I don't get burnt out Mm -hmm. on one of them. I can kind of shift gears. I can pop out an essay in a couple of days and then, oh, I'm more excited by the novel right now. So I can then go back into that and being able to switch gears has been super fun. It's been very fun. I operate the same way. I can't like just do one thing. Like I need to, I'm working on a novel that's coming out in 2024 and I had a memoir just, that just came out this month. No, called, it. Yeah, what is your memoir? It's um, called book, a Bookends, a Memoir of Love, Loss, and Literature. Okay. Okay. I'll get it. I'm happy to send it to you or whatever, but um, a lot of these themes are in the book, P.S. <laughs> but in working on the novel, I, I literally spent the other day and I was just like, I could not do this all day, every day. Like I, I need all the emails. I need like getting up and running around and the kids and like, I don't know why, but like my brain works that way for whatever reason. It sounds like yours does too. Yes. Yes. I don't, I don't, I don't quite understand it. The, the, <laughs> I, I like assign it. I'm like, maybe it's because of the chaotic upbringing I was in that I kind of need a little bit of chaos in order mm-hmm. to feel creative. I need a little something, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that is exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, at least I'm not alone in that. <laughs> I, w- I would love to read your, your um, novel also. Do you know, do you have a date when you're... Oh my gosh. Dating? I'm still writing it, but it's coming out in the summer of 2024. It's great. Yeah. Awesome. When is your novel coming out? I, I don't know. There's no, I, there's no date. No date. Oh, yeah. sorry. I'm running long. I don't usually ever do this, but okay. Lots to discuss. Thank you so yeah. much for coming on. I really loved it. Thank you so much for having me. I, I truly enjoyed this, uh, this talk with you. It was really fun. Me too. Yeah. Hope to stay in touch. Okay, take care. All right. All right, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 
add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.